Welcome to Lifeside Beat. I'm your host, Maitha Sharma. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Ishwar Inapuri, former CEO and co-founder of Inamed. He's a Penn alumnus and young serial entrepreneur with a diagnostics at-home blood testing startup that was spun out of the Pennovation Center, Y Combinator back and eventually acquired by another diagnostics company, Fluxergy, in 2023. While still a college undergrad, Ishwar developed Home Lab Platform, an at-home blood testing technology to improve the monitoring and treatment of patients experiencing heart failure, kidney transplant, hypoparathyroidism, and IVF with reports linked directly to patients' electronic health record. Please join me in welcoming Ishwar to LifeSideBeat. Ishwar, welcome to LifeSideBeat. We are so excited to have you. Hey, appreciate you having me on and I'm hopeful that I can share some good advice to folks listening in. Great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your origin in diagnostics. What first drew you to the field? I joined a lab in Dr. David Isidore's lab and kind of just fell into it. We were working on some projects there and I met Anoop Singh, who was my co-founder and was also involved in Weiss Tech House and a few of the other entrepreneurial groups on campus. So that's really how, how it started was getting exposure to the industry through research through Dr. Isidore's lab, and then being in an environment that was entrepreneurial that allowed us to start it. Speaking of the diagnostics industry, in your view, what's unique about it compared to biotech or pharma or medical devices? Yeah, I'd say it, it's a really challenging industry. It has an overlap of challenges that both pharma and medical devices face from the pharma perspective, you know, the regulatory path. I know it's, you know, it's commonly thought of that diagnostics has a shorter regulatory path than pharma. But if you look at the empirical data on how long the diagnostics companies take to bring their products to market, it, it, it's almost as long. It, it, it is a really difficult path still. Even companies that are pursuing 510Ks, I think uh, just going through the whole process of research and development, uh, setting up a quality management system, doing your clinical studies, working through both uh, FDA clearance, as well as reimbursement. If you want your test reimbursed, if it's a novel test, um, all of that takes uh, almost as much time as getting a drug FDA clear. And, you know, it is cheaper to get a, a device, you know, a device or, or diagnostic cleared than it is to get a drug cleared, but the timeline is just as long. And wh when I say cheaper, it's definitely not going to be as, you know, as cheap as taking a software product or a consumer product to market still, right? So you're still talking tens of millions of dollars and five plus years. And so that makes it really challenging to make a venture backable, you know, case for investors. And because medical devices tend to have lower margins than pharma and drugs, that also makes it challenging. So I, I'd say financially, it, it's definitely a challenging business to draw investment and interest for traditional diagnostics. A lot of the innovation happens um, in the incumbents. Uh, they usually have innovation arms or they do a lot of product development in-house. Uh, but for new ventures, it, it's definitely challenging. Would you say the clinical bar for evidence is also lower for diagnostics compared to a therapeutic? Yeah, I think the bar for evidence is, is lower for sure. 
That being said, you know, especially if it's a 510k and there's a predicate device. So if there's a diagnostic that's already on the industry and you're making uh, incremental innovation, you can point to that and, and go through the faster 510k pathways. So the bar, bar for evidence there is lower. And even if it's a de novo diagnostic, the bar for evidence, I would say is still, there's still a, a, a high bar for evidence, but the number of studies that you need to do maybe lower and more affordable than for a drug. But that being said, I think even though that's the case, uh, a lot of times what you end up finding is that the actual uh, timeline doesn't change. Maybe the cost changes, but the actual timeline doesn't necessarily shrink by that much. You know, maybe it's eight years to take a drug to market, whereas for a uh, diagnostic device, like point of care diagnostic, maybe it's five years, right? So it's still a very long time, but it, it is more affordable, which is an advantage. Uh, but yeah, the, 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 the challenge is that point of care diagnostic specifically is combining the you know, medical device aspect with the diagnostic aspect, which is what makes it challenging. Speaking of point of care devices, can you tell us a bit more about the problem that home lab technology solves? and at a high level, how it works? Yeah, so we were, our, our hypothesis was that at-home blood testing can add value to patients' lives and outcomes. And a good, you know, good example of that is, you know, for diabetes patients that measure fasting blood glucose in the morning using glucose strips, you know, that, that's really important. So for us, we were looking at what are other diseases where at-home testing can help titrate medicine and therefore improve outcomes. And for us, the important metrics were, is turnaround time important? And is the testing done at a high frequency? And if the answer to those were yes, and if the test results drove titration decisions, then that could be a good indication for at-home blood testing. So for us, the indications that we chose, heart failure, for example, physicians frequently use potassium levels, creatinine levels, BMP levels to titrate guideline-directed medical therapy. Kidney transplant patients, they take immunosuppressants like Prograf, and that needs to be titrated carefully after transplant. Similarly, with patients undergoing IBS, uh, oftentimes they go through a process called ovarian hyperstimulation, where during this process, they uh, need to be frequently monitoring their hormone levels. So we identified uh, specific indications like those where frequency was high and results needed to be fast, fast turnaround time. And it was important to have the results because they were used for titration of a medicine. So because of that, those were good opportunities that we found. And that's where we applied the home lab technology. And the way the technology works is that we take the whole blood, which we used, uh, we had a partnership with a few microneedle vendors that offered an easy way to collect blood at home. And once we collected the microneedle blood, which was about 250 microliters, and, and for context, that's about like eight to 10 drops of blood. Um, once we collected that blood, we had a disposable cartridge that took that blood. And there was a uh, test strip in that cartridge that reacted with the blood and created an electrical signal that we could measure. And based on interpreting that electrical signal, we could determine how much of a certain analyte was in that blood sample. And so we were developing this, this technology. It, it's similar, not, not too different from how the glucose meter works. You know, that's also based on electrochemistry. 
And so we were trying to apply similar technology towards other analytes because in our view, it was scalable. And so that was what all of our R&D was based on is applying this electrochemistry technology to these new blood tests, which we thought were useful to these patients. That's a pretty cool technology. In terms of volume of blood required, what do you think was the biggest barrier previously to having just like fewer blood drops for these types of tests? Yeah, the finger prick, it's interesting, the the finger prick that's used for glucose testing and, you know, generally for point of care testing, there's a few issues with it. One, it's a low volume. And so it's hard to multiplex accurately on a low volume. So if you're trying to do multiple tests on a single finger prick, that's very difficult. That's why a lot of the point of care tests you see today, often it's a single test, like it's a point of care HbA1c or a point of care INR or glucose. So multiplexing is difficult when you have a single drop or a small volume of blood. Uh, the second thing is with finger pricks, you're very susceptible to hemolysis. Uh, oftentimes patients aren't trained in how to properly take a finger prick. Um, and, and that's not a big deal for like a glucose test, but when you're trying to measure something like potassium, hemolysis is the big deal because potassium, you know, has different concentrations inside of the blood cells versus outside. And so hemolysis is where the blood cells burst inadvertently when you're drawing the blood. And if that happens, you're going to incorrectly measure some analytes. So in this case, we turned to the microneedle technology that was recently came to market to solve the hemolysis problem and to solve the volume problem so that we could have a larger volume, a cleaner sample that we could then use on our machine. Now shifting gears to talking a little bit more about the company building process. How did you navigate the IP process? Yeah, so we uh, actually licensed IP from Auburn University. So we, what we did was we took a first principles approach to finding IP that would meet the needs of our customer requirements. So we said, hey, these are the requirements that would make for a minimum viable product. And we had certain things like shelf life, you know, size, form factor, you know, accuracy, et cetera. And once we came up with those requirements, we did a survey of the available IP and literature that was across the country to see what IP would be the best candidate to meet the requirements that we have. And when we did the IP search, we found this IP at Auburn University that we thought was very exciting. And we went to Auburn, um, we worked with the PI to investigate the technology further. We did our due diligence. We hired, at that time, we had a, a PhD on our team who ha had helped us do some diligence of our own as well. And then we started conversations with the Auburn University tech transfer team. We did an initial sort of test period where we got a first right of refusal on the technology and we evaluated it. And then we decided to license it. So there's a lot of, you know, there's the long process of, of license negotiation. You have to negotiate terms like field of use, exclusivity, the exact metrics that, you know, how much are you going to compensate the university for the equity, for the license in equity or in royalties, you know, all of that process. And then uh, once we finalize that IP license, uh, then we start working on, on the product. And one piece of advice I'd have for founders is if you are licensing university IP, it's really important to look at technology readiness level. 
that was a big issue that we had and a mistake that we made as first-time founders. We licensed IP that wasn't at a uh, sort of, you know, commercially validated. A lot of university labs, they do research and development, but they do it with the goal of publishing papers and they don't really investigate the commercial feasibility of their technology. Technology readiness level is something that I would very carefully vet prior to licensing university IP. In the pharma space, it's not, you know, again, it's still a, obviously still an important issue to focus on, but because, you know, that pathway of university IP to, you know, pharmaco biotech spin out is more defined, oftentimes that technology readiness level, the pathways and plans to achieve that are are well spelled out. And I know you touched a little bit upon the regulatory process earlier, but what was that like for your company and how did you navigate it? Did you have advisors or previous founders in the diagnostic space to help guide you? Yeah, tons of advisors. We used a regulatory consultant, we used a quality consultant, and then we used a reimbursement consultant. So we had folks on all three of those dimensions. We were introduced to those folks through mentors. So we had a great mentor, uh, Dr. Kenneth Fong, who was a, you know, in his, in his previous work was a practicing physician, pulmonologist, and, you know, was also a chief medical officer after, you know, after being in academia. And he helped us find some of these consultants, find vets and find the right people to work with. And I think it's critical to have that on your team. They did a lot of work for us defining the process and helping us draft initial, you know, draft initial documents. We had conversations with the FDA. We had pre-submission meetings. We had conversations with CMS on how our product would be covered by, you know, uh, covered by CMS. And then we also had um, conversations with quality um, on how to set up our quality management system, how our product would be manufactured. So all three of those are crucial uh, to get right um, in, in your business early on if you're, if you're founding the life science. Sounds like you had great advisors regarding your team. How did you go about building or choosing the right team members? Yeah, advisors are key, especially in life sciences. So physicians, uh, I mentioned Dr. Fong. Uh, we also had Dr. Daniel Bensimone, another uh, physician uh, who was on our advisory team. Um, we had overall like six or seven physicians on our advisory team, incredibly valuable. Um, and then we also had uh, several consultants who had uh, gray hair, lots of experience in diagnostics and life sciences. These are uh, folks I mentioned in quality, regulatory, reimbursement manufacturing product uh, across across that scale. And then we hire PhDs, either fresh PhDs or PhDs who had a few years of experience. And a mistake that we made is that we didn't hire experienced enough employees. And what I mean by that is I would have loved to have someone who came from Abbott or who came from Siemens who had you know, 10, 15, 20 years of experience and saw the development and launch of a product from you know, day one to FDA clearance and sales. It's folks that have been at these diagnostics companies for 15, 20 years, they know how hard it is to launch a point of care diagnostics product. And therefore they are risk averse. You know, th- their view is they're skeptical that a startup can successfully launch a point of care diagnostics product. And that skepticism uh, prevents them from joining the startup unless the startup is well capitalized. 
So it, it is difficult to attract talent, but that that's a big piece that I'd say is, is uh, important to success. Getting a startup well-capitalized, can you talk a little bit more about the fundraising process, whether it's different for a diagnostics company versus other life sciences companies and what types of investors you might target? Yeah, there's, there's not a lot of diagnostics investors out there. It, it is a small group. So it wasn't difficult to find folks who were interested in diagnostics investing uh, because it's a small group. The, what I would say for, you know, founders in diagnostics is try to de-risk the product as much as possible with non-dilutive capital. So focus on grant funding first. Grant funding, as much as that can get you to de-risking the technology, that will make your life a lot easier. Um, Investors care about two things. One is, again, de-risking of the technology. They want to see something that looks like and works like the product. And two, they care about cost of goods and sort of the, the unit economics. They want to see that the unit economics of your product makes sense for venture backing. And those are two areas that we also struggled. We, as first-time founders, again, didn't have a lot of experience in manufacturing. And we, you know, Two things there. There's two ways you can solve that problem. You can hire manufacturing expertise or you can, you know, show investors a pathway to getting to lower cost of goods in the future and make sure you do as much real, you know, research as possible to make that pathway realistic. For us, we, we had challenges showing that we could, you know, generate 70% margins, which is what, you know, investors are, are excited by 60, 70% margins. We, we had trouble really getting investors confident that we can generate that, that level of, of margin. So th those are the key things, I think, for a diagnostics company, validation of the, the technology and then unit economics. Of course, the product market fit is a little bit more straightforward in healthcare than in other industries. And we targeted investors who are very, in, you know, knowledgeable about diagnostics. So in being young founders, we, we definitely face challenges, I think because diagnostics is such a difficult industry to commercialize a profitable business in, investors are wary to invest in young founders because that adds additional risk on top of the industry risk that exists. If you look at a lot of diagnostics companies today, Q Health, you know, Lucera, a lot of these companies that, you know, blossomed during COVID, that got a ton of investor money during COVID. Now they're, you know, if you look at their stocks, you know, they're not doing too hot. And the key reason for that is, you know, again, a unit economics. And so investors are, are very wary of investing in diagnostics. You have to have unit economics down and, and, and validation of the tech. When you mentioned de-risking your product, is it more so being able to show that your technology actually works with, through your product itself and the data from your trials? Or is it more so like choosing the iterative path rather than a paradigm shifting product? Yeah, it's mainly showing data. They want to see data that your product works. So human studies, showing comparative studies, you versus the gold standard. How do you correlate? How do your, you know, how, how does your robot, you know, reproducibility look? Standard diagnostics metrics that, you know, you might want to look at like CV, percent CV or whatnot. I think for for investors, it's mostly the, that data, the, the clinical data, plus the, the unit economics that matters. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the diagnostics um, space is a little bit more risk averse than other spaces. Do you think that like a really innovative paradigm shifting product is 
received a bit less warmly than in other industries? Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. There might be many reasons for that. One is investors have been burned in the past in diagnostics, where it's really hard to turn a profit and, and get venture scale return. There's also the whole Theranos scandal and how that burned investors. Really, the, the, the really successful companies in diagnostics have been those that do lab-developed tests. They, they don't really have hardware risk. Um, you know, risk compounds. So if you have founder risk, hardware risk, and then chemistry risk, FDA risk, reimbursement risk, all of that compounds. So if you can uh, eliminate or minimize each of those, then uh, investors are more comfortable. So if you're doing a lab developed test, you can eliminate hardware risk. And that's what one way to, to decrease risk. Obviously, if you have your clinical data, that decreases risk. If you have unit economics, that decreases risk. So th there's a lot of ways to, to decrease risk there, but um, that, that's key to investors. And, you know, even though we raised a seed round and we got you know, interest from investors in an A round, we ultimately ended up selling the company to another diagnostics company called Flexergy in California because we had trouble raising our series A and we decided that an exit would make more sense for us because we wanted to be part of a well-capitalized company who could continue to fund research and development and was willing to take on the risks that we were facing as opposed to investors who were more risk averse to your point. I know you mentioned like being a young founder, that's like one factor that creates risk for investors. How did you kind of overcome that or prove that you were still experienced despite your age? Yeah, the, the young founder risk, I think, is unique to healthcare because healthcare requires a lot of connections and a lot of industry knowledge in order to succeed. So connections, because a lot of times sales in healthcare is connections based. And because healthcare is so fragmented, you need to have those connections in order to make inroads. And then second thing is a lot of healthcare requires industry-specific knowledge. So knowing very detailed, you know, processes for uh, the FDA clearance-related studies or the reimbursement pathways or the quality management systems, all of those are very, very detailed and very, you know, industry-specific information that you need to learn. And a lot of experienced folks, you know, if you've worked in diagnostics for 15 years, you already have that experience. Whereas for a founder like, like me coming straight out of undergrad, you have to build that experience on the job. And so for me, I, I learned a lot of that through, you know, working directly hands-on in those, in those different disciplines. So for example, if you take quality management, I would write out the actual quality management documentation myself the SOPs, the actual, you know, operating procedures that we use, the actual requirements documents. And so we worked with a consultant, a quality consultant, but we often learned via the quality consultant how to do it ourselves as founders so that we could talk to it intelligently to investors. Yeah. And the learning by doing technique also signals, think, founder passion and dedication to the product, which is really great. When you talked about your company growing to of the series A stage, what was the process like scaling from the university setting up to that stage? We went through Y Combinator in 2017 and we, at the time Y Combinator was in person, had about a hundred companies per batch, different than it is today. And after graduating Y Combinator, we raised about a million in funding. And at that time we hired a couple of PhDs 
we based our company out of Philadelphia. We initially were based out of the Science Center, which was at 36th and Market Street. And then eventually we moved over to the the Penovation Center. And and from you know 2018 to 2021, we grew from about three or four employees to about fifth full-time employees. And we built our team from a combination of PhDs, mechanical and electrical engineers, uh, a couple of software engineers, and and then all of the other functions were done by me and my co-founder or consultants. So we did sales. We worked with, with consultants for quality, regulatory, as I mentioned. And so we just built the company over time. And because the technology that we licensed wasn't you know, as commercial ready as we had liked it to be, we spent a lot of time on R&D. And we also spent a lot of time, again, I mentioned being early founders, we spent a lot of time learning by doing. So both of those things caused our timeline uh, to take longer than, um, than expected. And granted, I, I mentioned earlier, life sciences timelines are long in general. So that also plays a role. But when we were at our largest, we had about 15 employees. We were doing about a couple million. We were doing about one, 1.5 million in revenue. Interestingly, we were very scrappy and we said, hey, you know, it's, it's difficult to raise money. And by the time in, in 2022, by that time, we had raised about 4 million. And we said, hey, it's difficult to raise money. Let's work with pharmaceutical companies who want to fund, you know, novel diagnostic tools. And so we had contracts with several pharmaceutical companies who wanted to work with us to do at-home diagnostics for clinical trials or other applications. And so that was a scrappy approach that we took. We, we, we had a whole sales pipeline. We talked to a bunch of pharma companies and we, we closed contracts to generate non-dilutive revenue, so to say, to fund RD on top of the dilutive investment that we took. So those were the different strategies that we used to kind of grow the company over the years and continue R&D while we were in Philadelphia. And then in terms of your exit strategy and acquisition by Fluxergy, is there a reason you chose that over like another bigger diagnostics company? Yeah, we, we actually talked to a few diagnostics companies when we were going through the sales process. We, we ran a, a, a formal sales process. We didn't hire a banker. We looked at it. We didn't think it was necessary based on the size and stage of the company. Um, and, and in general, uh, as founders, we were, you know, do it yourself, you know, learn by doing type of founders. So we wanted to, to take the challenge on. We reached out to, you know, we had a whole pipeline there as well, similar to the sales pipeline, where we reached out to a ton of diagnostics companies. We didn't think pharma companies would be interested. It's not their core competency. They don't want to take on risk. And we thought the most interested parties would be early stage diagnostics companies who have a lot of cash, who are well capitalized. We thought the later stage diagnostics companies also would not be interested in taking on the risk. And we thought they would be worried about, you know, kind of our, you know, our products and how they align with their existing products and the lack of overlap. And so we... Our view was, hey, early stage diagnostics companies that are really well capitalized would be interested because they need, you know, new, especially in these companies that IPO'd or stacked during COVID, all they had was COVID tests. So what are they going to do when COVID ends? And our hypothesis was they're looking for ways to diversify away from reliance on COVID and infectious disease testing like flu and COVID testing. And so... 
we reached out to all those, all those companies that, that were in that space and said, Hey, we have an at-home testing solution too, but instead of COVID, we're focused on chronic diseases, which is more of an evergreen sort of landscape uh, as opposed to COVID, which is cyclical and may fade. And so that was our hypothesis. And, and we, we made a whole pipeline of companies that we could sell to. And Fluxergy was one of them. So we went and took meetings. We, we met with maybe, you know, we, we did our outreach. We had initial phone calls and, and leadership meetings. And then we ended up meeting in person with the C, C-suite with a, a few of the companies that were really interested. And at the end of the day, you know, what the companies were interested were our team, the work that we had done so far, you know, any IP, trade secrets, et cetera, and, and, and bringing that know-how on. And then also the sort of the business model research that we had done and the market research we had done. Those were the main assets. And we ended up selling to Fluxergy because they valued our assets. And on top of that, they were open to keeping our offices open in Philadelphia. And that was important because our employees were hesitant to move. Again, employees have families, they have, you know, they, they have their own pressures uh, that they deal with outside of work. And so by working out a deal with Fluxergy, we were able to make our employees also happy by allowing them to stay in Philadelphia. And the employees were also a big uh, part of the uh, value because they had a lot of the know-how behind the technology of the company. So that, that's why the, the deal with Fluxergy worked out. And they're well capitalized. They, they've raised a good amount of funding. They have strong backers and they're working in a similar space where point of care, at-home blood testing. So it made a lot of sense for us to go that route. Yeah, that's great. You know, you mentioned COVID and also kind of the Theranos scandal as kind of major events in the diagnostic space. How do you think those have created any lasting changes in the industry? Yeah, Theranos for sure increased the bar for VC investment in diagnostics. They want to see more data. They want to see more, you know, validation. And it also sort of soured non-life sciences investors from diagnostics. There was a period of time where, you know, tech investors were really interested in the life sciences and started investing in the life sciences. And, you know, the Theranos scandal, I think, uh, created some sort of awareness and hesitance among tech investors because life sciences is not their core competency. And again, like I mentioned earlier, requires a lot of industry know-how. So the Theranos scandal made the bar to raise more difficult in life sciences and specifically, you know, obviously diagnostics. And then COVID, it, it was really interesting, created a lot of VC money in infectious disease testing, specifically COVID testing. But, you know, once that market dried up, all those companies that were focused on COVID testing, now they're having a lot of trouble. So investors who kind of went with the, you know, went with the flow during that period of time are now kind of struggling in writing down the valuations of their investments. So I think, you know, just goes to show the, the challenges uh, of the industry and having, you know, having a long-term vision because, you know, uh, it, it is foreseeable that, you know, COVID would have ended and you need to diversify away from COVID. And so I, I think that also makes short invest you know, current investors more wary as well. You know, what is the long-term vision? What are the unit economics? Uh, putting more focus on that. So again, if, if you're an entrepreneur in, in diagnostics, I'd say, you know, the, the key things, my key takeaways are 
what is the technology ready, readiness level when, if you're uni licensing university IP, can you use grant funding and non-dilutive methods to get to a high te technology readiness level? And then can you prove out unit economics and can you show validation of your technology prior to you going to raise funding? Those are some great tips for success. I guess looking forwards, what do you think are the most exciting new innovations in the diagnostic space? The ones that you describe as paradigm shifting? Yeah, I, I think I mentioned a few of them that, and I know everyone's talking about AI these days, but really the, if you talk about investment and also progress, the, the AI based companies, so to say, have done really well. So clearly in, in companies like clearly, which do, um, EKG analytics. It's really interesting what you can find in EKG data. Originally people thought, Hey, we can just find heart rate data and, you know, arrhythmias and abnormalities. But now people are, you know, running different models on, on, on EKG data to find completely, you know, um, unique diagnostic insights. Similarly, you know, people are, there are diagnostic companies that are doing computer vision on retina scans to diagnose diabetes or uh, other diseases, uh, hypertension. There's companies that are doing uh, computer vision on when you're doing, you know, colonoscopies like iterative scopes. So uh, there's a lot of interest around AI ML. It makes a lot of sense because, you know, when you're selling software, it's low cost of goods and you can improve outcomes, then that's great. There's a lot, also a lot of interest in sort of the, and maybe the hype cycle has died down a little bit, but there's still a lot of investment and in, in interest in liquid biopsy. Um, where uh, you can kind of, you know, the earlier you can detect disease, uh, the sooner you can act and the better the outcomes. So, and people are willing to pay for that because the jump in outcomes is so great. And again, there's no hardware risk. It's a lot of lab developed tests and software. And then similarly, similar to liquid biopsy, also the whole genomics industry, uh, I think prenatal testing is very interesting. Uh, again, a very important problem for many people. So th there, there are hotspots there in diagnostics, I'd say, and, and I'm excited about where those hotspots will go in the next 10 years. And I think there will be a lot of innovations in those three areas specifically. So that, that's what I'd look forward to. And that's where I'd spend, you know, my, my mind share if I'm a uh, diagnostics entrepreneur. In terms of your future, what's next for you in your career path? Are you working on any new companies? Yeah, I'm in the exploring stage. I, you know. Currently, I'm open to different ideas, uh, looking at opportunities in, as everyone is these days, but in the overlap of uh, generative AI and digital health, there's a lot of, you know, uh, workflow automation and, you know, administrative automation that, uh, you know, can be done in healthcare. And I think physicians would be really appreciative of that if they could come home from work and not have to you know, do prior auths or reply to portal messages or, you know, do the whole host of administrative tasks that they often do. And so there's a willingness to pay there. There's a big pain point there. So exploring opportunities in that landscape. Um, but at the same time, you know, always have my eye on, uh, on the life sciences side as well. So still in the early stages, but hopefully we'll have something exciting in the next, the next few months here. Looking forward to it. Any last words of wisdom for young entrepreneurs? No, I, I think, you know, it's an exciting path. It's a challenging path. I think my biggest advice for, for entrepreneurs is make sure you have the right people around you. Having that expert talent is really important. 
And so if it means advisors, if it means spending, you know, spending, raising more money and spending more money on, um, you know, high caliber talent, you know, whatever that might mean, I, I think making sure you surround yourselves with the right people is really important as a young entrepreneur. So that, that's my biggest, biggest advice. But otherwise, I think, you know, it's a good time to, to be an entrepreneur with, with all the innovation that's happening. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Ishwar. Looking forward to seeing how your journey progresses. Great. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Meda. Thank you.